Hello, and welcome to No Brainer, a podcast by Heal the Brain with Jane. No Brainer is here to demystify brain injury falsehoods, foster hope, and hopefully inspire a chuckle or two. As a founder of Heal the Brain with Jane and a neuro OT, Jane stumbled upon too many aha moments and simple solutions to count. Jane is here to share these no-brainers while discussing the most complex organ in the human body. This is a celebration of the badassery that is the day-in and day-out experience of brain injury survivor. Hello and welcome to a new episode of No Brainer, a podcast for the brain injured community and their support staff and their caregivers. Today I have Linda Graham with me. I'm so grateful to hear this voice. Um, She is a psychotherapist for the last 25 years and today we're going to be talking about, she has two books, but today we're really talking about Balancing Back, Rewiring Your Brain for Maximum Resilience and Well-Being. It is just incredible. I have found it so helpful personally. And um, it's also an audible, so great for our community. So welcome, Linda. I'm so happy you're here. Thank you, Jane. I'm very excited to be here, actually. It's a really, really good topic. And it's a really, really good service that you're providing. So I'm happy to be part of it. Oh, thank you. That means a lot coming from you. I, I think I told you, or I think I emailed you, that I was listening to one of my favorite podcasts ever, the one you feed, and you were on it. And mm-hmm. I, I pulled into my driveway and I emailed you immediately because I everything that you were saying, I was like, oh my gosh, this is what I have not been able to articulate. This is what really hasn't been articulated very much because the idea of resilience is abstract, but the way that you explain it through the brain and neuroplasticity is, I think, just really incredible. It's really exciting. Well, thank you for saying all of that. And Ah. we'll see how we do. So I wanted to start with this quote that you actually have in your book. It's from E. Cummings. And he says, we do not believe in ourselves until someone reveals that deep inside us, there's something valuable, worth listening to, worthy of our trust sacred to our touch. Once we believe in ourselves, we can risk curiosity, wonder, spontaneous delight, or any experience that reveals the human spirit. So I just wanted to hear your response to that. You know, I love that quote too. And I realize in the context when we're talking about a brain-injured community, Sometimes a sense of identity has been so shaken by whatever has happened to cause the brain injury that helping people come back to a sense of identity, a sense of self that they can embrace as whole and worthwhile and with all the potential that they might have to live out their lives in a really successful way. It's important that people get to feel good about themselves for who they are. And that's part of the resilience training is to be able to fully accept and integrate who you are, all of who you are. I love that. That was one of the reasons that I chose heal in, in my, uh, in the title of my nonprofit, because I like the old English understanding of heal to be whole. And Mm -hmm. really, I know 
from working with some incredible people that healing and being whole, you can be that if you have a disability, if you have a big trauma that you're going through, all of that is possible. But I have never been able to articulate or understand resilience the way that you are presenting it. And I think it would be valuable. Can you define resilience for us? <laughs> yes. And I, and I have a thought here, even as I'm hearing us talk, when people undergo any kind of trauma, trauma can be a vehicle, healing from trauma can be a vehicle that brings us to our wholeness. Oh my God. So that's why when I, when I teach about resilience, I teach about using adversity to transform us into learning and growth. That whatever has happened, how we respond to it is how we grow as a human being. And so resilience has traditionally been defined as coping with adversity, bouncing back from the challenges that happen to us in life. But as we know from recent studies in post-traumatic growth, sometimes we can't bounce back to what was normal before. We have to bounce forward into a new sense of life, a new chapter of life, a new sense of who we are. So I think resilience, recovering our resilience, is partly being able to once again see options, see choices, see possibilities, see new meaning, and see new purpose in our own lives, in our existence. And that is part of resilience. So that's why I focus, when I teach resilience, I focus on response flexibility of how you respond to whatever has happened determines how well you're going to be able to cope with it, your own response flexibility. So when we're rewiring the brain, when we're using our neuroplasticity, to be able to cope better. It is about increasing those capacities of response flexibility. Well, and I love that you that you talk about neuroplasticity because it and and I love what you said too in your book about I mean it's so young. It's only 20 years old. So, yeah, I, mm-hmm. a lot of practitioners of the even, you know, new ones like me, we know about it, but how to how to really convey it to our clients so that they really understand and how to discuss it in this way that is accessible. Um, I, you're really successful at that. And I'd love to hear a little bit more about, you know, how you talk about um, neuroplasticity in terms of rewiring, rewiring the brain for resilience. So this is a big topic. You know, Norman Doidge, <laughs> Norman Doidge wrote his book, The Brain That Changes yes, Itself. I'm a big, big fan. I email him frequently. He must be, he must be writing something because I, he's, he hasn't been um, speaking very much, but I think that, I think he is so amazing. So yes, continue. So he writes quite eloquently and quite encouragingly about actually changing the physical structure of the brain, that the brain can do that and it can recover capacities, it can recover functioning. When I'm teaching about using the neuroplasticity of the brain to recover our resilience, that's using the natural capacity of the brain to grow new neurons, grow new neural connections, create new neural circuitry. And when we know how to do that, when we use the tools that can do that, then we can send the functioning of the brain in a wise and wholesome direction. So 
Bouncing Back is full of tools to do that rewiring. The second book, Resilience, is full of tools to do that rewiring because we know from neuroscience, we know from behavioral science what some of those tools would be. What I want to say is that it is safety, a sense of safety in the brain that sort of primes the brain for the neuroplasticity to work. It primes the brain for learning and growth. So it's really important, especially for people um, coping with any kind of disability, that they are able to feel safe in their being, safe in their home and in their community, safe in their sense of who they are and what they're capable of, because that's what allows the brain the best to do the rewiring and to do the learning. And I also teach that because the brain learns best little and often, mm, yes. small experiences, yeah, yeah, small experiences. Um, repeated many times. And so that's why we do these exercises that can be very simple, but we do them many, many times over and over and over to create that new neural circuitry. So that is meant to be encouraging that people can do small practices over time and see results when they persevere. That's something that I really, really understand because I see neuroplasticity in my work every day. Especially, I think eighty percent of my private practice is stroke, um, post-stroke. Um, mm-hmm. You know, sometimes two to five years post-stroke. And what happens is that they, because they get so discouraged, they stop doing their daily routines. And so as an OT, mm-hmm. that's my focus. And and I keep saying, it's that little simple thing. It's just reaching your hand out on the table while you're eating. You know, not meeting with it, mm-hmm. just having it there. Um, so it, it's so interesting because when you're talking, it makes so much sense. But one of the things that I think that I've really missed as a practitioner is understanding how to go- cultivate safety. Um, because that I maybe that's the missing link. I mean, it's been so fascinating to me the people that are so resilient and move forward and create these lives and, um, and new meaning through adversity, like you were talking about. And then the people who can't seem to cope. And what you're suggesting is that that can be learned. It can be learned. And I teach the way to support that learning is through conscious, compassionate connection. And all three of those are important to have conscious awareness of what we're experiencing, what we're perceiving, how we're responding to what we're perceiving, which can include the internal messages that we give ourselves about how well we're coping or not. So being aware of all of those patterns, being compassionate, and the mindful self-compassion protocol is so useful for people to be able to have compassion for themselves as the experiencer of what they're experiencing. Life is hard. And if you have a disability, it can be even harder. And to have compassion for yourself that this is what you have to go through. And then connection, because we know that being able to connect with people who are empathic and attuned and resonant and compassionate and supportive, you know, being compassionate companions is really the way our brain moves into safety so that we're encouraged, we're willing to try again and again. So this conscious, compassionate connection, a lot of the tools are to strengthen that and to foster that. It's so interesting because one of the things that you talk a lot about is self-compassion and empathy. 
And I've been really influenced by Kristen Neff. Um, and I mean, I think she's just phenomenal and Brene Brown always, but um, I think, I think that really um, that's something that as a whole, um, the rehab system is maybe not, we're not, we're not fostering that. It's the idea is that you, you've got to come in, you've got six sessions, you have to work super hard and it's all on you. And if you, and, and meaning the client, and if the client doesn't perform, that's because they don't have potential or they, um, or they didn't try hard enough. And so, you yeah, know, when, so <laughs> when Kristen wrote her book and developed her mindful self-compassion protocol, every client I have ever given her book to or her workbook to goes, oh, this is me. This is so helpful. Thank you. Thank you. Because mindful self-compassion creates a space in our own being that allows for the pain, the fear, the grief, the confusion, it allows for that. It normalizes that. It says you're a human being. That's why this is happening. And it takes away the shame. It takes away any of the shame or guilt for what we're having to cope with and just allows us to focus on getting on with the job. I do want to say that Kristen is now developing a protocol for bringing mindful self-compassion into the healthcare field. Oh, and actually teaching physicians and nurses and nurse practitioners and OTs and the whole gamut of people how to incorporate mindful self-compassion into the work that they do with their patients. So it's been a long time coming, but it's about to be launched. So that's important to know that healthcare providers can be able to offer self-compassion practices for their patients. They can practice it for themselves as well. And not going well, to burnout. And, yeah, I, there, burnout is a really, I mean, it's such a big, big topic in my field because, especially with um, with my, this population with brain injury and stroke and concussion, a lot of people will that I talk to who are I really admire, they'll be like, "Well, don't you just get frustrated? They don't get better," which is not what I see at all. Um, but it's really interesting because. It's a results-minded thing, and that—that that is what you, one of the things that you said in your book is that that actually doesn't lead to resilience if you're you're always results-minded instead of like experience-minded. Or um, I can't remember the words that you actually use, but maybe you could talk a little bit about that. That's a big problem. Mm-hmm. We- well, you know, I frequently have people asking me as a psychotherapist. How can you stand to sit and listen to people's problems all day? And my answer is, I'm not listening to the problems. I'm listening to the spirit that people bring to solving these problems. I'm listening to their energy and their determination and their commitment for their own health and their own healing. And that's energizing. Linda, that is, I'm actually smiling. Like I have a huge smile on my face because Ah, uh, you just you articulate so much of what my where my heart is and where I'd like to be, mm. and um, yeah, that's just really special. And I see that too when people come in, you know, and they are creative with what's going on in their life, and they are working not just like working hard for and and feeling sad when they're they're working with this yeah this amazing 
human spirit that you you can't even articulate or come to a real good understanding of. I, you said it so perfectly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, then, then I will go on. Thank you. That because we know the brain learns from experience and that's how the brain learns, period. So when clients or patients have experiences, that is changing the circuitry in their brain. That is building new neural connection. And so when people have experiences, it's not focusing on the results so much, but it's focusing on the experience and what shifts for them because of the experience. And I'm now teaching my clients, okay, we'll learn this tool. You'll see the effect of this tool. What you're really learning is that you can learn a tool that will change your life. That's really what you're learning is about yourself as a learner. And so when people come to see themselves as resilient, as learning and changing and growing, then it takes away the pressure of how slow or fast this is happening. It's happening. And that's what's to be celebrated. Oh my gosh, absolutely. That's one of the things that I do really try to think about a lot in our work is, you know, just making people feel masters of a skill, mm-hmm. you know, even if it's a small skill. I, I, before we started recording, I talked to you about a gentleman who was really just feeling so frustrated with making toast mm-hmm. um, because that was one of his, one of his um, tools. One of the things that was, that I think was eye opening for me is that, cause I'm always learning and I know all of us always are, is just that I didn't realize he didn't have he didn't have the um, capacity at that moment to calm himself and get curious and step away from all that was going on in his head, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and that's one thing that, yeah, I'd like you, maybe if you could talk a little bit more about that for the, for the community, for clients who are going through this, how, how do you get to the five <laughs> Well, increasingly, I teach how important it is to have tools, have practices that regulate the nervous system. Because if we are in fight, flight, freeze, if we are revved up into anxiety or fear, or if we are shut down and withdrawn or collapsed, if, we, if we're not managing our nervous system to be in that physiological equilibrium from which we can learn and grow and cope, then the first thing is to be able to come to that what's called the window of tolerance, what's called the range of resilience, the safety zone. That's where we need to be in our own being to be able to learn to do anything else because that safety is what primes the neuroplasticity of the brain. So there are many, many tools in both my books and many, many tools that occupational therapists have, physical therapists have, psychotherapists have to help someone manage their own nervous system manage the anxiety, manage the depression, manage the fear, and be able to be in a place of calm. And then, as you said, curiosity, so that they're open to the learning. They're not overwhelmed by their feelings or by the state of their nervous system. So that's one of the first things that has to happen. I've noticed with me, I'm, I'm an overly touchy person. I think that maybe my patients would say that once, once we get really, once we get, you know, I, I will work with them for a long time um, and they're just okay with it. But that's, that's one of the things that I have to work with their hands. So I'm constantly holding people's hands so they can feel right away 
when they're just off, when they can't get into their being. And it has been a really, it's been a real privilege and a, and a wonderful learning experience to just stop and kind of sit with people. And I have to learn to calm myself down, get in my being. Because I'll, I'll have a plan for the day and I'll be like, oh yeah, we're going to, you know, we're going to do this, this, and this. And then they come in and I touch their hand and I'm like, oh, no, we're not. <laughs> we're not, we're not doing any of that today. So, you know, um, Becker Keltner at the Greater Good Science Center at UC Berkeley says that touch, touch is the fastest way we have to come into a sense of safety and trust because warm, safe touch activates the release of oxytocin. It's the hormone of safety and trust, bonding and belonging, calm and connect. And it's the brain's direct and immediate antidote to the stress hormone cortisol. So when a patient feels safe with their hand being held or a hand on their shoulder, then that helps the entire body brain relax and come into that physiological equilibrium. If there is a history of trauma or abuse, then touch may not work for that person if it evokes disturbing memories. But for many, many people, touch is just an excellent way to help soothe the nervous system. And for us psychotherapists, where touch is mostly banned, we're not supposed to have physical contact with our patients. Deb Dana, who's a trauma therapist in Maine, has come up with what she just calls the um, hand, a hug handshake, where you just simply put the patient's hands between your two hands. It's like a handshake, but it's like a hug of a handshake. And the person can begin to feel held and connected with and cared about and calmed down. So there are ways to use touch in our practice that can be very helpful to the patient. Well, it's so interesting because that's just a little, I, I talk a lot about um, proprioception because for, for the brain, getting some of that feedback, even if it's from the ground, you know, doing like a, not even a push-up, but a modified push-up or leaning on your hand, it can be very tethering. Mm-hmm, yeah. And, and it, um, it really helps the um the survivor figure out oh this is where my hand is in space mm-hmm. and so it's interesting that it also helps us figure out where we are in space emotionally mm-hmm. you know? I, guess I hadn't put that together and I, I really I really love that the, the other thing go ahead please oh go ahead no you go well I'm thinking that when we feel safe in our bodies we're more able to pick up the emotional field that we are in with other people as well, because we're always reacting to the emotional signals that we get from other people. That's an unconscious process. And so we're picking up the vibe that we get from other people. And if we don't feel safe in our own body, it's hard to pick up the sense of safety that might be coming to us from another person who is giving us care or who is giving us treatment. So we want to know where we are in our own body in space, but we also want to know where we are in the emotional field that we are a part of. And so being safe in your own brain allows you to pick up those signals and respond to them. Oh, yeah. I mean, that that makes a lot of sense. And it actually, as you were talking, made me think of another thing that um, that I found really profound in your book was um, you were talking about this idea that with new learning, 
um, and, and rewiring your brain, you need to be, um, calm, but also alert. Mm -hmm. And, uh, that's one of the things that I teach a lot with, um, that I, that nobody had explained to me, but just working with so many people, I was like, it's, it's almost like a Zen moment. If you have to quiet down, but also think hard. You know, so putting somebody on a mat and saying, move your arm 10 times is not the same as really being with them and conscious of our movements, but also calm, you know? Yes, it's to be calm and relaxed, but engaged and alert. That's what that state of equilibrium is. And so that's why it's a conscious process. There have been studies that show when we are aware of our movement, we're actually creating more brain change than if we are only mindful or only moving. Mm, yes. When we're mindful of our movement, that's when the brain is the most active. Oh, gosh. I need to read that study. That, so that's something that I've started is um, I just started to do one-word meditations while people were lifting their arms. Mm-hmm. So I was say, just say light. You know, if they had dense hemiplegia, just say light, just be light. And as they lift their arms saying light. And the crazy thing was the people that I've had do that, a lot of them have had really severe aphasia where it's difficult for them to talk. But when they combine the movement with that thought, they could, they would say more. They would say, I am light. Whereas they, where they had a hard time before just saying the word. So mm-hmm. it's fascinating, and it really speaks to what you just said. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that was Helen Lavretsky at UCLA. She's a neuroscientist and a yoga teacher. And if I can find the study, I'll send you the link. Oh my gosh, that would be great. Now that we're best friends, that makes sense. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> I love it. So um, yeah, and the other thing that I that I really liked is this idea that it's not resilience isn't um this idea that all of a sudden you're resilient that it's a that you're you can be in a storm like you used that um beautiful quote by Louisa May Alcott that you can mm-hmm. be in a storm and navigating resilience and gaining resilience and working on the five c's of coping mm-hmm. well you know the um as i teach resilience more and more i started out teaching recovering our resilience after something tragic has happened. But now I'm teaching more and more, let's build the resilience in the system before you're having to deal with something that's truly difficult so that your mind already knows how to respond flexibly. It already knows how to bring your nervous system back to calm. It already knows to reach out and be resourced by other people so that we're practicing resilience ahead of time with the smaller difficulties that we have to cope with so that when something truly overwhelming happens, we can stay in our boat (laughs) and we can learn to navigate that because we've been practicing all along. So sometimes I teach tools that will pre-wire the resilience, you know, creating resources for resilience even before we need them. And that becomes part of the resilience mindset, like Louisa May Alcott. No matter what storm's happening, I'm learning how to sail my ship. I can handle it. 
So when we have that resilience mindset, it's not that we go looking for trouble. We don't. But we know that whatever happens, we have the resources that we need or can certainly learn how to find them um, in order to be able to cope. And you use the example in your book, too, of somebody who, um, because of a childhood experience, had he was really critical. Mm-hmm. And, um, and he, he was retraining his brain to be less critical. Um, and what I, what I really appreciated about that was that he was able to see, once you explained the neural capacity of his brain, he was able to see that he had retrained it. Yes, yes. Th- that goes back to what I was saying earlier about I'll teach a client a tool. It's great if they can learn the tool, they see the results of the tool. But the most important thing is that they're learning that they can learn a tool. They're learning that they can make the choices that will make them more resilient. That's the real gold of that kind of training is to shift your sense of yourself as to someone who is resilient. Yeah. It's so it's interesting. It really makes me think of the Japanese, I think it's called Katsukura. I'll have to look it up and, and edit in the podcast. Mm-hmm. But it's the idea that when when um, China breaks, you fill it with gold. And then mm-hmm. that, do you know what I'm talking about? Oh, yes. And then the, the bowl is even more perfect than it was before. Yes. And it's the same idea, mm-hmm. right? It's like building these skills and that is the gold. And it's so true. I mean, that's really something that I see a lot in my work. Mm-hmm. But what I have found really um, profound about your work is that um, I found that I found resilience pretty mysterious before. And I guess what I would say is, in my mind, I was thinking, why do some people do well and some people don't? I don't understand that. You know, one of the one of the big findings in the field of resilience and trauma is that we can learn from adversity. We develop our resilience by meeting challenges as we go along in life. And in fact, people who have never had any problems aren't as resilient because they haven't had the practice to be so. But if someone has had too many traumas, too young of an age in childhood, and then there's trauma after trauma after trauma, called the adverse childhood experiences, then the capacity of the brain to cope with trauma doesn't develop as well as it needs to. And further traumas just simply pile on top of a system that's already vulnerable. So some people can cope very well with trauma because they have a secure base within them. And other people have much more trouble coping with trauma because there's been previous trauma has overwhelmed them before. So that's one of the biggest factors when we look at how someone is coping. Well, how have they coped before? And has that been an issue before? And so do we need to help people not only cope with the current circumstances, but heal from any trauma that might have derailed them before? Wow. Mm -hmm. And I think what's really powerful, though, is the idea that you can heal from that. I, I mean, it should not be shocking, but in in um, my field and in rehab in general, there's even this idea that, you know, um, you have a trauma and then that's it. I mean, it's like, we'll give you some tools, but if you can't pick up on them, you're out. And I think what I'm really, what I read a lot in your work is that 
no, there's, there's so much more going on with this person and there's so much more hope and possibility than we can even quantify. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, we look up to the people like Norman Deutsch or Bessel van der Kolk in the field of trauma who don't give up. Yes. And keep, keep looking for how to do an end run around whatever seems to be blocking the growth. Is there another way to approach it? Which is why Bessel van der Kolk has brought in yoga and theater and all kinds of things to help people recover from trauma, not just talking about the event. Because sometimes we have to go in another direction to get around the block. That's what Norman Deutsch was saying. The brain can learn to you know, pull in resources from all over the brain and recreate the functioning if a structure has been damaged. So that kind of perseverance is important, not only for the patients, but for the practitioner. Yes, yes. And I I think that was one of the things that I'm so excited about Kristen Neff's um, new work. But I think for all my fellow OTs, PTs, speech, um, everybody, that really this book, Bouncing Back, is great for us too. Mm -hmm. Um, Because sometimes there's this feeling that um, when you're advocating for your client, that you're kind of alone in the in the field because there's so many people who would say, oh, you know what? They're not responding to therapy, so just discharge them, you know? Mm-hmm. And it can feel, it can feel really, um, it can feel really like, yeah, like you're alone in the, in your quest to kind of get help for this person. And the person feels alone in their quest yeah. to heal. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And that is the farthest thing that we want from, you know, that's, that's not what we're here for at all. Mm -hmm. Interesting. I was saying that living is this balance between safety and challenge or safety and risk. And that when a child is young and they feel safe at home in their parents' arms and they go out into the world to play and to explore and something happens and they rush back home to the home base to feel safe again and they recoup, and then they go out with the next level of risk. That's how we build trust in ourselves, that we can do that. And so when someone is in recovery and is struggling with a challenge, it's really important that they get to feel safe, that they get to feel competent at something, not even necessarily the thing that they're trying to do, but to feel competent somewhere in their own being, because that sense of competence and mastery is what develops a sense of confidence that they can then apply to the next thing. So even if it's something very, very small, you know, I I learned how to open a jar lid or I can turn the doorknob or something where they, I got it, I can do that task, that skill, that sense of confidence then can translate to the next thing they have to learn how to do. It's really interesting because when, when, um, a client has a success like that, I will, I'll be like, that's amazing because it really is. I mean, it might've taken me a year and them a year to figure out how to learn that new skill. And the feedback sometimes that I get is, oh, it's not, it, it's really a simple task. It's not that hard. And I'll have to say, wait a second, this took a year of therapy to figure out how to open this jar. Mm-hmm. You know, can we celebrate it? So maybe to speaking to how to address the simple masteries and, and really own them and, and say, that's, 
that's great that I could do that. That took me a long time. You know, my friend Rick Hansen teaches a practice of take in the good, that whenever something positive happens, whenever there is that kind of mastery, to take 30 seconds to focus on that, savor it, feel how it feels in your body, really generate a sense of savoring and installing so that the next time something gets hard, you can go back and get that felt sense of, but I succeeded before. I had that sense of mastery before and feel it in your body, owning it in your body. You can bring that forward to the next task. Okay. I'm over here smiling so hard because I'm thinking of all the things that I need to do um, to for mastery. Actually, this book was so helpful. I have to tell you, Linda, because I was dealing with some really difficult um uh, insurance and billing things for my private practice. And I was getting really stressed out and I was listening to bouncing back on tape and it really helped me to stop and to think, okay, this is a new skill. I'm learning a new skill right now. So it's difficult. I need to take a break and go for a walk and come back. But I was like, oh my gosh, Linda's teaching me right now. (laughs) (laughs) And what you just mentioned, Jane, about taking a break and going for a walk, because that is resetting your nervous system. Yeah. Okay. It's, It's called skillful distraction. And sometimes we get overwhelmed by whatever's going on and you can have a moment of skillful distraction and have a cup of coffee or play with a puppy or talk to a friend and get an encouraging smile. And those breaks help reset our nervous system so that we're ready to try again. It's actually a skillful thing to do. Oh, I had no idea how skilled I was. (laughs) If you saw me yesterday with my my, um, head in my hands, looking at my billing, you probably wouldn't have thought I was very skillful, but I'm glad I did go for a walk. Mm -hmm. That is skillful. And that's what we want to be able to convey to our patients when they get discouraged or they fall in a black hole or they feel stuck. Yeah. Is either to be able to remember a moment when they were doing well or go have a moment where they're doing well and come back re-energized to try again. Absolutely. Oh, well, I just, I feel like we could talk for two hours. I Mm -hmm. (laughs) am so grateful for this time. And I thank you so much. I know you're really busy for taking this time with me. It it feels a little bit like I got to meet like a, a star or something. I'm a little starstruck. You know, Jane, I appreciate our time too. And I appreciate it not just for our conversation, but for the people that you work with and other people who might be hearing this information to encourage them to keep going in their process. And that's meaningful to me to be able to offer that. Oh, I really, well, I really appreciate it because I know that so many people are going to be listening to this and really getting a lot out of it. Um, I know I'll be sending it personally to a bunch of my clients and former clients. So I appreciate you so much. And can you tell us where we can buy your books and um, your website and all of that good stuff? Okay. So the website is Linda Graham dash M. F-T, M as in Mary, F as in Frank, T as in Tom, dot net. And you can buy the books, Bouncing Back and Resilience, at any major bookstore or any of the online sources as well, or from the publisher New World Library. It's readily available. And as you said, the Bouncing Back is also on Audible, so they're easy to access. And there's so many resources on the website, all the 
posts that I send out every week are archived. There's interviews with other experts on resilience, like Chris, not Christina, but Tara Brock and Chris Germer and you know, Ronald Siegel and all kinds of people like that. Oh, excellent. And and so the audio recordings of many of the exercises are on the website. So the website is really a resource meant to be useful for people. Wonderful. Well, I will be linking that in the show notes and um, putting that on my social media too. I'm so grateful for you. Thank you so much for doing this. You're quite welcome, Jane. Thank you for the privilege. I do appreciate it. All right. All right. I'll talk to you soon. Bye. Okay. Bye-bye. I hope you've enjoyed this episode all about how to develop resilience through mindfulness and through radical empathy, self-empathy. I really enjoyed talking with Linda Graham, and I'm so grateful for this time. I hope that you will continue to listen, like us on iTunes, and support. Support the work. Support these conversations. And, um, yeah, thanks. Hello, me again. I just wanted to tell everybody some very important things that are coming up that I forgot to mention before when I was talking with Maddie. Number one, we are having our first ever stroke wellness workshop March 14th at Studio Fly Slow in San Luis Obispo, California. So if you are in San Francisco or Sacramento area, that's about two hours south of you. If you're in Los Angeles, that's about three hours north of you. And if you're in the UK, that's a flight and a little drive for you. Um, this is something really for the community around me and, and the clients that I serve, but it is open to everybody, and hopefully this will be something that I can capture in video form and um, have online, but if you're in the area, it's such a cool opportunity. It's something that I've been dreaming about for a long, 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 long time, and I'm really excited, like really excited to get it off the ground. Um, you're going to learn about the three C's of long-term recovery, calm, how to stay calm, conscious, and creative and uh, a lot more. So stay tuned and please sign up on my website. My website is www.healingthebrainwithjane.com. There's also a newsletter there and some um, free little PDFs for your hands and how to create goals, etc. Also, I'm a real life person, so you can email me. Uh, you can email me on my website and I will respond. Um, yeah, so please reach out. Second thing, so nuts. I have merch. Like, who am I and when did this happen? Um, I'm really excited about it. It started with just a mug because I wanted one for myself and um, a necklace, which I talked about, I think, in a blog or something um, that I wanted to give to somebody. Um, but now I have a zip up hoodie. That's unisex and really cute. And I love hoodies. Actually, I um, I always recommend them for uh, people because it's a great way to work on pinch and to work on lifting your arm with um, zipping. And it's also a good way to work on your sequencing. So sequencing is like, I know to do this step and then that step. So um, hoodies are actually awesome little tools. I love using them. 
Then I also have a cute workout tank that's really light because mama gets hot and I got, I kind of designed it for myself, but it's for everybody. Um, and on the back, it says, uh, brains beef or yeah, brains before beauty, which is cute. And I love it. Um, there's also a gentle reminder bag, which has a quote on it that I love. And, um, and then the mug, which I use every day. Uh, it's a good size. It holds like two cups of coffee and I can trick myself and think I'm only having one. So that's fun. Um, yes. And I really like my merch because it's not like, it doesn't have like stroke survivor all over it or brain injury survivor, which I love those things too. But if you're in a place where you're not really ready to talk about that, or you're done talking about that, it's something that you can wear that are gentle reminders that are just for you. Um, so go check it out and, um, I hope you enjoy it. Third thing, so important, Patreon. I really need more support to continue with this podcast and my blog and all the things that I do online. So if you could support that, I would just like be over the moon. And there's a lot of little perks that you get. For example, I'll give you a shout out, or you could email me, um, on one of the levels, um, and ask a question and then I'll answer it, um, in a blog or in a podcast. So maybe a blog too, who knows, but, um, $1 is like so much for this enterprise, way more than you will ever know, because it just shows me that you're out there and that, um, that this means something to you. So anyway, you guys are magical. You're magical beings and you deserve magical lives. And I really am so honored to be a part of this journey with you. And I hope you keep listening. Big hugs and lots of healing. Talk to you soon. Mm -hmm.